You're listening to The Contrary Beekeeper Show. I'm Dan. I'm Greg. And I'm James. Join us as we journey into beekeeping while we learn to be the change, one hive at a time. Welcome back to another episode of The Contrary <laughs> Beekeeper Show. Uh, we're, we're down here at Blue Ridge Honey Company with Bob Benny. And uh, Bob, thanks again for taking the time out of your busy day. You're probably familiar with Bob Benny. Uh, for some reason, uh, if you're living in a cave and you're not, you can go to his YouTube channel at Bob Benny uh, and check out all the incredible work he does keeping bees commercially. Um, it's, it's a huge influence uh, to a lot of us who are getting started and trying to grow um, our bee yards, our businesses. Uh, and so it's a, it's a great resource. Uh, Bob does a really great job. We were talking earlier about your first year in beekeeping uh, was you in Oregon starting with eight hives. What did that look like first year? Well, I told you about the buying those eight colonies with zero experience and bringing them home, and they were just completely full of swarm cells. Mm-hmm. The fella, you know, there was a guy down the road, and he kind of knew what I was interested in, and he says, well, these eight colonies will do exactly what you want. You can split them and make lots of bees out of them. And uh, I don't know if he didn't know it or not, but uh, those half of them had already swarmed, and the other half were full of cells. They all had cells in them, even the ones that had just swarmed. And I split those colonies into 32 or 35. It's kind of hard to remember the number now. And it was a tremendous experience. Uh, I can remember opening opening them up the first day. I brought them home one evening and opened them up the next day. And uh, just being flabbergasted at the amount of queen cells. Between eight colonies, it seemed like I was seeing hundreds of cells. (laughs) And maybe I was, or maybe my memory's off because it was so astounding, you know. And I I just closed them back up. I said, oh, my gosh, you know, I've I've got to do something immediately. I'd read some books about splitting with queen cells and... And it was very attractive, but I didn't have the equipment to do it immediately. And that's when I made that trip down to Central Point, and I met that that old fellow there that had been a commercial beekeeper, and he was selling bee supplies and honey out of a small building on his on his old place there. And I told him what I was up against, and it was really kind of a fun story. Um, he, uh, I, I, I had a list of what I thought I needed. I thought mm-hmm. I needed this many of these and this many of those, and. He listened quietly. He was a man of few words, actually, and he listened quietly, and he says, I know what you need. And he went to work in his shop gathering things up, and I was kind of looking around at this and that and watching him work, and he was putting an extreme pile of stuff in in the center of the floor. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I said, you know, I I don't have a lot of money. And he said, yeah, that's okay. Kept piling stuff up, and when it was all over, I looked at that, and I said, "I, I can't afford this. Now, keep in mind, this is the first time I'd ever met this man. He didn't know me from Moses. Wow. And uh, he, he said, uh, I said, I, I can't afford all this. And he he stood up, finally stood up and looked at me. He had a habit of not looking at you. Uh, I don't know what that was about, but he would look away when he was speaking. And um, even when he was, he wasn't being impolite. It was just the way he worked. And at that point, he stood up and looked at me in the eye, which was, you know, not normal for him. I learned later. And he said, uh, it's okay. You can pay me later in wax and honey. 
And I really had to think about that. I didn't know him either. I just yeah. all I knew is this, the guy I bought the bees from told me about Delmer, the old guy down in Central Point where you could pick equipment up from. I didn't know him either, and I, it gave me truly gave me pause. I thought this there's something wrong here. Mm-hmm. And then, but I was in this kind of desperate mode, you know. So yeah. I said, "Oh well, okay." He didn't want my phone number. He didn't take any information. I told him I lived in Weimar, which is out of Rogue River. He says, oh, yeah, I was born in Rogue River. I know where you're at. And that was all the information he had. He didn't know where I was at. And uh, just come come see me later. Well, I came to see him much sooner than later because I needed more stuff and had to figure <laughs> out how to, you know, these, these colonies needed supers at one point. And so uh, he was just generous like that all through that first year. And then I told you the story about him selling me those 75 colonies yeah. that he had that he couldn't work because he, at that point he was using a walker and a cane and he couldn't work bees anymore. And he sold me 75 colonies in the fall that were in total disarray. And he paid for the sugar. I didn't have any money. He paid for the sugar to feed them, to get them through the winter. And, and uh, again, on credit, Pay me in wax and honey. It probably took me a year to a year and a half to actually start giving him something back, and he just kept feeding me this uh, this equipment. It was just astounding. Of course, about three years later, I learned something that I didn't know at this time. When he retired, he had a mountain of equipment in an old dairy barn uh, on a ranch owned by his brother. It had been the family family farm, family home. Yeah. And I remember one day, much later, three years later, I needed something. And he says, well, let's let's take a ride. Come with me for a minute. We got in his old Pontiac station wagon. We drove over to his brother's, and he opened the double doors on this big, this was a big barn, you know, from early 1900s when Mm -hmm. farms were the real deal back then. And I was looking at a barn full of equipment. There must have been four semi-loads of equipment in that barn. Jeez. And I knew he wasn't beekeeping anymore. You can imagine what was going through my head. Yeah. I, I was almost had selfish thoughts at that point. You know, I think, God, can I get this stuff myself? And that's exactly what happened. He just kept feeding it to me and feeding it to me and letting me pay him later. And that's one of the ways I was able to expand so rapidly. Had had him to thank for that. <laughs> I didn't have the money to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Going from starting off from eight hives, going to thirty-five, whatever that it was. It sounded like you knew what you wanted out of beekeeping from the very beginning. Yeah, I sure did. I, I never hesitated. When I, when I read those books in the early days without having any bees yet, I already knew I wanted to make my living at bees. Uh, even before I'd stuck my finger in a single beehive, I already knew that I wanted to do it. And I know a lot of people think like that, and they're never quite able to pull it off, but I was one of the lucky ones. I was able to go. It, it never was a hobby. From the first eight colonies, I didn't approach it as a hobby. Yeah, I approached it as a business and uh, with the intentions of, intentions of expanding rapidly, and it did expand very rapidly for me. I was lucky. You think that brought a different mentality to the game versus starting off as a hobby? Uh, yeah, because there was no hesitation. I was focused from day one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we talked earlier about how focus, when a person focuses on something and they become immersed in it and their imagination is always uh, thinking of it, uh, you know, that it kind of attracts what you need to you. Life kind of provides what you need. And that absolutely uh, happened for me. 
and having Delmer in my life was part of that. And then he, he was the one who got me the job with the commercial beekeeper. I'll never forget the day. It was, it was a very simple thing, but it was profound for me. And he, uh, I guess it might have been about, it was, well, it was November, actually. He says, I can tell now that you're deadly serious about this. I, it's no joke for you. You're, you're going to, I can tell you're going to be successful. He says, but what you need is, he says, you need to work for a commercial beekeeper for a while so you'll avoid some of these mistakes that you're about to make. I mean, it was clear to him that, you know, I was at that stage where I was about to, you know, get bigger and make a bunch of mistakes along the way. And uh, he just got on the phone, and his side, all I could hear was his side of the conversation. Mm-hmm. He picked up the phone. He said, Glenn, I, you still need somebody? I got somebody. I sent him over. That was the whole conversation. <laughs> wow. And then I, I drove over to, over to Glenn's place, and he had no idea that I was interested in beekeeping. You could tell from that conversation I mm-hmm. just described. He had a big wood shop bigger than mine mm-hmm. and uh, he needed somebody he needed another employee in the wood shop and uh, I went to work that those first few months just uh, the first job I got involved in was making 2,000 pollen traps for CC Pollen Company in Arizona and he would build anything for anybody as far as beekeeping went you wanted custom pallets custom frames boxes lids whatever you wanted he would make it and so uh, every winter we would do that and so right off the bat, I got really good at making woodenware, and that was a tremendous boost for me too. Because mm-hmm. if you're on a budget and you can't afford equipment, you know, if you can get your hands on a table saw and a cutoff saw, you can do a lot. Do you think you'd have a wood shop now on site, make your own boxes if you didn't start off there? I think I would have. It's just with Glenn, I got so good at it so fast because we, for several months that winter, we just ground out woodenware yeah and and glenn taught me something pretty important that stuck with me all these years um and you you said you were a contractor so you can relate with this uh not everybody measures accurately and glenn would (laughs) many 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 times when i'd have the the tape measure measure out you know trying to measure something small like three-eighths of an inch Mm -hmm. he said you need to look at the line look at the line down the cut in the board you want to go from the center of the line Mm -hmm. to the center of the line Yep. His his okay. This is you're going to find this astounding. His tolerance for beekeeping woodenware was eight thousandths of an inch. Wow. Yeah. And if you he just wouldn't tolerate anything different. That's a pretty close, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't think something like that for beekeeping equipment, but I got really good at uh, at viewing. Uh, viewing a stick and being able to tell whether it was right on the money or not. Mm-hmm. It was just practice. I don't have any special skill. You just you look at three-eighths enough times, and pretty soon you can tell if something's three-eighths or not. Yeah. Three-eighths is a common dimension in, in a beehive because the bottom bars often are three-eighths, the end bars are three-eighths, and so on and so forth. And I got really good at telling telling if something was right on the money or something like that. It seems like the the, the universe called Bob Benny – you heeded the call. You started to put in the extreme amount of work and commitment uh, to making all those things happen. You've mentioned that doors seemed to open one after the other. They really did, yeah. It's And as we were talking earlier, it's it's hard to look back on some things and say that they were a uh, in the red or a, uh, a mistake that uh, didn't turn out to be uh, something positive. And we were talking, it was more of like, 
Uh, they're more like learning opportunities along the way, and it's part of your great canvas, your your magnus opus at the end of it. It's all part of it. Um, but was would there be anything that you would have done differently or managed differently early on that, that really caused you some trouble as you started to grow your operation, your business? Gosh, as far as beekeeping went, I, I can't imagine having anything go better than it did. Of course, there were lots of little mistakes along the way. You can't get involved in beekeeping at a at anything beyond uh, a few colonies and not have a lot of mistakes. Well, one of the things I did learn, you know, over time and the mistakes that I made continuously was sometimes trying to be too cheap, trying to be too frugal. Um, There are these days, if I can see clearly that a piece of equipment will make my life easier and make me more profit, Mm -hmm. I don't hesitate to buy it. In the early days, I, first of all, didn't have much money and sometimes tried to get by with something that was just maybe a little too cheap and a little too inefficient. And this would have come in the forms of woodworking equipment when Mm -hmm. I really should have stepped up my game but kept on going with the old piece of equipment. And, uh, of course, these days my time is very valuable. And it's not that I have any special skills that are super valuable, but if how do I explain this? Like like nuke production season. Yeah. There's times when your time's worth a hundred bucks an hour, exactly, because that's what you're making, you know. Yeah. And if you're trying to do that with an inferior piece of equipment and only able to get half as much done, mm-hmm. why wouldn't you invest in the better piece of equipment? And so somewhere along the line, I kind of changed the way I looked at things when it came to equipment and tools. And and as we walk around later today, you're going to see that you know all of our equipment is really good stuff. And it's because I can't afford failures. I can't afford inefficiency and things like that. So if I could point to any big mistake that I made early on, it was just uh, not biting the bullet and getting the right stuff the first time. So it's the buy once, cry once mentality? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You do it right the first time. I argue with my wife all the time about that when I'm tool shopping. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Christy's going to hear this. And Dan's going to be like, see, I told you, Bob Benny said I can have anything I want out of the store. Bob said buy all the tools. Go big or go home. Yeah, but, but see, the criteria is, will it make you money? <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that little asterisk on the end. Yeah. Sometimes it's just fun to do what you want to do. It is. Your YouTube yeah. channel is great because it's you enjoy sharing and expressing your art and wisdom uh, with the knowledge all in a, in a nice, um, nice package. And, you know, I was thinking as you were talking earlier about uh, the gentleman, was it Delmer? They're, yeah, they're Delmer? Your, Delmer your early Smith mentor. was his name, yeah. You know, as he's he's giving and imparting wisdom and knowledge, and uh, he's providing you with the opportunity uh, with that equipment that would have taken you a little bit longer to maybe acquire on your own. And you know, I was when I was you were talking, I, my my mind was kind of wandering uh, into kind of uh, hippie land where it does sometimes. But you know, he maybe he saw something in you, and you, you know, he mentioned he had a different kind of a personality on how he approached and looked yeah. at things. And here you are, you know, and I'm sure. It seems like you have that kind of nature about you to where you give, you help, uh, you're passing the torch on. Yeah, I try to approach it like that. Some people are a little surprised at how much I help my competition. I've even had people working for me go, you know, he's your direct competition. Why are you doing that? I've never had, I don't have any deep, dark secrets. There's no need for it. There's room for everybody. 
And uh, I do believe in karma and all of that sort of thing and do on to others and so on. And anytime you give, if you give something to somebody, if you're in need, that what you did is going to come back. I I, I don't just believe it. I, I no. see it. I mean, I've yeah. proved it a million times. So, um, so I have no problem sharing with others. I think it's uh, not only good for them, it's good for me. There's something about that. Uh, you, we have seven kids. You try to teach them. Uh, it's it sounds like it's cliche, but that it is better to to give um, than to receive. And as we grow into adults and get busy in the chaotic life and try to start businesses and making a way for us and our family, it's it's easy to kind of lose um, that that train of thought and that way of doing things. But I've never um, I've never given uh, to somebody uh, and and wanted to see them do well to where. I lost sleep at night, but if there was an opportunity to where I could have helped somebody and I didn't, those are the things that you, some, unfortunately, sometimes you can never undo and you never get that opportunity back. And so I appreciate your, uh, your, your, your point to that. That's, that's, uh, uh, with, with any, uh, agricultural enterprise, there is an enormous amount of cutthroat competition seemingly oh, that gosh. a lot of folks participate in. Uh, and I really enjoy the little fringe areas to where, uh, you know, a lot of us aren't like that. It's, you know, we, I think there's, there's, there's lots of smart sayings and so I won't try to say them all, but there's one to where, uh, what is it? The, the high tide raises all ships or something to that yeah, nature. Yeah. You know, that's, um, that, that's, that's an important aspect. And like you said, it, uh, it, it comes, what does, it comes back around, even though you're not giving, expecting a return on that investment, that those doors have opened up for you all these decades, one after the other. You've done something right. I don't know quite what to read into this, but it seems like in the beekeeping industry, you may see a little more of that than you might somewhere else. Beekeepers are pretty generous with each other. Of course, there's always a percentage of the population that is more giving or less giving, and beekeeping is, you know, is is that way too. But in beekeeping, it seems like there's a lot of givers and not as many takers. Right. Yeah, I've met so many generous people along the way. Um, you know, stuck in the mud, another beekeeper. He's busy too, but he takes a time out to help you get out of the mud. You see a little more of that kind of stuff in beekeeping. Maybe it's the personalities of people, the type of people that are attracted to beekeeping. There's something yeah, there. There's something there. Yeah, there? there's something there. Yeah, and we see it in the store too. You know, it's really neat to to, to see the type of pers- people that come in looking for bee supplies. They're they're a little different. It's not the average person. It, uh, I don't know how to explain it. My wife has, you know, pointed out that people, when they walk in here, they walk in with a smile. More times than not, people are happy to. They're happy people, and they're happy to be here. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know quite how to read into that, but there's there's something. Yeah. It seems like most of us beekeepers are uh, goofballs in a positive. Light. Goofballs in a positive way. Yeah. Um, and, that sounds about right. <laughs> and, and, and to where, you know, we all have a little bit different mannerisms and things like that. But, you know, one thing I noticed is, yeah, we were excited to come sit down and uh, and, and meet with you today and, and talk with you and learn a little bit more about Bob Benny. But when we walk into your showroom and you walk into a, a building that is, is covered with natural materials, wood everywhere, walls and, and the smell of wax and the smell of woodenware, I mean, it does something, I think, to just the primal man to where you can't not, you can't not express you know what? Um, yeah, that, a positiveness yeah, with that's that. That's a good point. There might but, be something yeah. to that, yeah. There's something not only comforting and nurturing, but, you know, walking through here, it was almost like, um, 
it's it, it's invigorating. Uh, all those senses coming together. Um, so have you done a really great job with with the showroom? But putting those natural elements together, uh, I think is uh, it's. I don't know how you can walk in here and not have a smile on your face. I mean, we all have bad days. I'm sure it happens, but. Um, I can think of worse places to walk into for work. <laughs> well, you're probably right. And as we built this building, I'm not an engineer. Mm-hmm. It took me 10 times longer to design this place than somebody who knew what they were doing would have taken. But every in every element, I tried to make it warm and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Like when you go into the pouring room, which we'll go in in a little while, I tried, obviously the room is very bright and white for good light, but I put that yellow on the wall. Yellow's a happy color, I think. Yeah. And uh, and when we go into the warehouse, it's it's just a warehouse, but it still has a pretty clean, pr- pristine feeling about it. And I tried to engineer the place with that in mind to make to to include the idea of a good experience and not just efficient workplace. I'm in the middle right now of building a honey house. Yeah. Well, make it happy. Use the right colors. You know, I saw an article a long time ago. This was, I don't even remember what it was about. It was some manufacturing plant. And every machine was a different bright color, like a like a blue or a, yeah. or a yellow or a green. And I, at first glance, it seemed bizarre. But the explanation was that it keeps people happy. And I thought about it a minute, and I think they were right. Having yeah. color around and, oh, yeah. and any, what you mentioned, having natural elements, wood and stuff, it just makes people happy. It elevates their their consciousness so to speak it does yeah that's that's, we got plenty of ways uh plenty of time to go before we have to worry about color so okay it's just sticks on the ground right now well think study color yeah i definitely am now like uh, i this is an interesting point i read an article talking about the color yellow and they said if you do math on a white uh tablet and do do white or math on a yellow tablet that you'll make less mistakes on the yellow is that why legal pads are like a yellow I, tint? Maybe so. That's, I don't know. That's interesting. It is interesting, yeah. Wow. There's definitely something about um, a yellow, but I, another, when you're walking through and you see all the different type of honeys that you have here, all the different shades oh, of, yeah. of amber, um, honey is one of those interesting things, too, where if you trace back what honey actually is to the source element all the way back, yellow pops up again. It pops and gold and, and gold because we're getting back to the sun. We're getting back to yeah, the very interesting. the one source that if it, that weren't here, we, none of us would be. And so there is something uh, rejuvenating, invigorating, uh, and definitely uh, something that's our senses are naturally in tune with. And so yellow, ambers, things like that is uh, is is, is uh, great, Bob. When you know, we've we've kind of we've we've talked about uh, kind of your who Bob was in the beginning and you getting started, the doors opening. You put yourself out there to do the work, the eighty-hour work days. Uh, it takes a special person to really um, be in tune with that and keep moving forward, even through uh, trials and tribulations and such. Uh, a lot of folks listening are probably there. They could be uh, a backyard beekeeper with one hive. They could be growing to a sideline scale with 20 or 50 or a hundred. And then maybe they're looking at, uh, trying to turn their passion into something, uh, that is, uh, financially resilient and sustainable. What pitfalls do you see with, with folks? Well, what I've seen with some folks is, uh, going too fast, too hard. Um, and, uh, 
I'm pretty famous for biting off more than I can chew and figuring out how, how, mm-hmm. how to chew it. But what I've seen a number of times, and it's so sad because I've had good friends do it, they get five or ten colonies, they have some good honey crops back to back to back, and they get a pencil and a calculator out and go, wow, I can make some money at this. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they go to the bank or borrow money from their mother-in-law or whatever, and suddenly they've got 500 colonies. And uh, it's just too fast, too far, too soon. And I've just seen people go completely bankrupt, lose everything, honestly. Yeah. I had one guy I saw he maxed out his home mortgage and everything to go into the bee business and just lost it all. And I'm thinking of one, two guys in particular that they're just kind of like you. You two actually remind me of these two people. Uh-oh. Now, don't. We're not going to make a direct compare. Well, they, these guys had a complete falling out in the end because they went in the bee business together. One borrowed money on his house. The other was a semi-truck driver, mortgaged his truck that had been paid for. And suddenly they went from, literally went from five colonies to 500 in one season. Oh, no. They bought 400 nukes from me and packages from somebody else. And uh, immediately went into the bee. They had grandiose plans. They were going to do the almonds. They were going to make this much honey. They were going to go to the Dakotas. I mean, it was big. And three years, I lost track of them for a couple of years. And three years later, one of them called me and said, uh, we have a lot of used equipment for sale if you're interested. They had lost it all. The bees had They'd lost the bees. The bees had died. They weren't experienced enough to keep a good handle on the mites, and everything just went totally south. And, of course, when huge amounts of money are involved, sometimes the best of friends can have a falling out. Oh, exactly. They'd been you know, lifelong friends, and now they weren't even speaking. And I've seen that sort of thing happen several times. So uh, too far, too big, too fast. We asked some listeners if they had some questions for Bob Benny, and okay. so we uh, kind of put a little list together, and uh, everyone always enjoys uh, the rapid-fire question sessions with, with Bob. One of the first questions, which I think is an important question, because everyone seems to have a little different answer um, for this, but Caleb Stevens asks about, uh, he wanted to know a little bit more about syrup ratios and the results following. I get a lot of questions about that. You know, had a couple of videos where I mentioned mm-hmm. thinner syrup and the different ratios. There's really no rocket science to it. And what people have to understand is it doesn't have to be exact. That's the first thing people need to understand. Yeah. One to one, if it's 1.1 to one, it's, it's just not a big deal. It yeah. all works. Uh, in a nutshell, the thinner syrup, like say 1.5 parts water, to one point uh, one part sugar has a highly stimulative effect it it's best for uh, creating brood and building wax without putting on a lot of weight <clears throat> excuse me whereas if you feed two to one you can still draw out foundation and you can still rear brood and stimulate brood rearing but you put on a lot of weight in the colony so it mm-hmm. kind of keeps the brood nest more constricted uh, one of our favorite syrups for feeding is one-to-one. Like if you're uh, starting a package or a nuke, I highly recommend one-to-one because it's a compromise between those two extremes. You'll put on some weight, which you're going to need in time, but yet you'll still draw out lots of comb and, and stimulate brood rearing. Um, when we're creating, I have some yards that are simply nuke production yards. That's all they do for the summer. We don't need to draw out boxes of 
stores on those colonies. Yeah. We just want to make brood and comb. And that's when I tend to use this thin syrup. I read a study, uh, out, it came out of India of all places a while back, and they stated that 1.3 parts water to one part sugar was the best scenario for drawing comb and rearing brood. So we we just kind of tend to go with a 1.5, mm-hmm. which is pretty close. Uh, 1.5 parts water to one part sugar for doing that. And it's really just as simple as that. Just try to get this concept of thicker puts on stores but still stimulates a little, and thinner uh, stimulates a lot but doesn't put on as many stores. It's really as simple as that. There's a couple follow-up questions regarding that. At the Hive Life conference uh, where we had met, uh, you were sitting at a table uh, with a gentleman named Malcolm McKibben. Uh, and okay. he uh, he had some some questions. You can't here. forget Malcolm. You can't you can't forget Malcolm. He's 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 a hoot. Well, I forget names, but I the face the yeah, face yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, uh, he was asking, uh, "What temps uh, do you start feeding your nukes in the year, or is that what the catalyst is to begin start the feeding progress?" Well, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. Like here in North Georgia, it's too they will not draw foundation. You can't make them do it. It's too cool at night. So we are feeding nukes a little bit right now, but it's more or less to just give them a little bit of stimulation to get them starting to rear brood and also to make sure they don't starve mm-hmm. because some of our small nukes didn't go into winter with as much stores as they could have or should have. So uh, as far as when do we start uh, feeding to s- stimulate Wax production and all that, it works best if you start getting evenings above 45 or 50 degrees where it doesn't get too cold at night. And then also something that helps a lot is uh, if there's pollen coming in, fresh pollen coming in, uh, that also helps a lot when you're trying to rear brood and draw wax. Of course, you won't get pollen coming in much if the cold weather is still with you. So um, it's really what you're trying to accomplish is really dictated by the temperatures. It's been said that you really can't raise honey or bees off the same colony, but you go about raising bees, I think, in a, in a certain way to where it seems as though pulling nukes off of your honey colonies is more of a maintenance approach. Yeah, if you have a, well, first of all, your your statement although well-intentioned, is, is absolutely incorrect. <laughs> and I think you know that. I can yeah. tell by the look on your face. People say <laughs> that, but maybe that's the case with a package the first year. You can choose to you know try to make some honey in the end or try to split it later on. But if you come out of winter with a good, strong, healthy colony, you almost have to make a split in order to keep it from swarming. And uh, you don't absolutely have to, but it's just one of the better ways to keep them from swarming. And uh, uh, so also we start a lot of our nukes in the spring with the intention of making a sourwood crop with them in July. And then when they're done doing that, then we'll split them again, you know. So we'll do both in the same year. We do it all the time. And uh, a lot. it's very obvious to me that there's a lot of people trying to figure out how to grow fast just from the comments and the questions I get. So uh, you can uh, get a nuke. Uh, in Ohio, it's different than here, I'm sure. You could get a nuke early enough and grow it up, um, perhaps to a single or a single and a half, make some honey, and then maybe in August you can split it again and make another colony. So you, you absolutely can do both. What do you look for in your 8-frame deeps and 10-frame single deeps when you're going into winter? 
That's from Hope Holbin. Okay, well, eight frame equipment is great. It, it, there's definitely some benefits to that, but of course, I don't have any eight frame yeah. equipment, so we'll just talk like everything's ten frame. Okay, it doesn't make much difference. Um, a healthy queen, a queen doing a good job. Um, you know, mites. Mite control is the biggest issue. It's public enemy number one, but uh, I think it's really important to have a good, vigorous queen going into winter. I often talk about requeening every year, and it's not absolutely necessary. You know, many people let their queens go two years and do quite fine, but because I'm trying to make sure that I have good, robust colonies in the spring to split with and work with, I always try to have a a queen from that year, that season, going into winter. You'll have a a higher overwintering success and possibly a little better and larger colonies in the spring. A lot of people don't know this. This is kind of off of his question, but a lot of people don't know this, that a queen really peaks at about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And from that point forward, she's slowly going downhill. And although we often see queens that are three years old doing doing a good job, they're not doing what they would have been if they were a year old. And Mm -hmm. uh, you'll see a lot less of them because some of them have perished already. So I'm I'm big about getting a queen replaced every year. That having been said, I also know that... uh, a second season queen performs in the beginning of the season, she'll perform better than a queen that's perhaps, you know, less than six months old. So fall requeening is a, a good technique to uh, have your best luck overwintering and have good colonies in the spring. But I just try to get a queen replaced somehow, sometime that season. Mm-hmm. So I look for that. Um, overall health of the colony. Um, if the, uh, you know, I, I told Jennifer Berry this once, and she, she was puzzled and finally understood what I meant. You know, when you look at a dog and you can just tell this dog's got a good coat, this is a healthy dog. Mm-hmm. How do you explain that to somebody? You can look at a beehive and say, this beehive's got a healthy coat. Yeah. And it's just there's a vigor about it. A, yeah. uh, I don't even a know how to explain to, yeah. it. A vibe. Yeah. A vibe. Let's use that word. Yeah. We'll just judge a colony just by how it looks and feels. Mm-hmm. If we don't like it, we might feed it, we might requeen it, or, or we, if it's really bad, we might combine it. So uh, <clears throat> just look for the overall condition of the colony. Well-fed, I like to feed a lot in the fall, a staggering amount compared to what most people feed, mm-hmm. because I don't want to worry about them starving in March. And when I start making splits... Uh, in this case, uh, this year we'll start making splits in mid-March. I don't have to w- want to worry about food. When I make a nuke, I want to know that there's food there to use. Yeah. You know, every nuke's going to get a frame of food and so on, and and we'll start feeding after that, after that event, after making nukes, we'll start feeding the mother colony. But I really try to not do it if I don't have to. It's been said a lot, uh, and I'm sure you've heard the, and probably get tired uh, of the back and forth, uh, but that would be a good opportunity, I think, uh, for you to, again, uh, maybe make your opinion known on it. A lot of folks are um, look at feeding for honey production colonies as uh, the detriment to honey quality across the board. How do you balance out the hives that you're feeding versus honey that you're pulling off? Well, first off, we never feed in any way that it could get in the honey. And that's important. Uh, there's there's two ways of looking at what you just talked about. One is the sugar detrimental to the colony, and if done properly, I'm absolutely convinced it's not. Uh, 
In fact, it could be even be a good thing and healthy for the colony. And then, of course, the other is keeping the sugar completely out of your honey. And it's pretty simple. You just stop feeding at a given time and and wait a little while. They're they're not going to move sugar syrup up out of the brood nest um, unless they're too full. Mm-hmm. And they're plugged out, then they'll move it up. But if they're in need of feed, you know, if they're they're bringing a lot of times when they're bringing honey in the door or nectar, I should say, early in the season, it doesn't even go into the supers. It goes straight into the brood nest. So you just have to be mindful of how you're managing this situation. There's no reason to have sugar in your honey if you're doing it properly. That's a good response because I think a lot of folks automatically assume if you put a bucket feeder on a hive that the bees are magically storing it and capping it as surplus, when in fact when your approach to feeding syrup is more to uh, get initial wax and brood and things up to a jump start to make sure they've got enough carbs and things going at on the front side. And then as the year progresses, and you probably see when there's a nectar flow on, they're going to walk right past the syrup and bring in nectar if you happen to have feed on. Yeah. And uh, of course, never, ever feed with supers on. In fact, we try to stop feeding well before the supers go on. And that's part of this equation. You know, just don't uh, feed, even the day before you put a super on, just don't do it. Try to have a, and I don't know what the magic number is because it depends on the season and when the honey flow is going to start. But, you know, if you can stop feeding a week or two before you put your supers on, most times you'll be real safe. Yeah. Tyler Holton has a question. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tyler Holton, uh, I, I know him. He's, uh, he's uh, over the last few years, has really... Uh, expanded uh, his beekeeping, and now he's out uh, helping commercially almonds and things like that. I think he's out of Iowa. He has a funny question, though. He wants to know uh, if you'll adopt him. If I will adopt him. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll just speak for my wife. No. no. <laughs> the, uh, I, I think the, the, the joke in that is that um, you have, uh, you've, you've been a great uh, source of education for a lot of us through a YouTube channel, and I'm sure over the years... Um, uh, you've helped mentor and, and get folks started here locally. And so uh, I can't speak for all of them, but I know we uh, appreciate uh, all the work that you do with your YouTube channel. Um, Bob, I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down with us uh, and uh, learn more about the the early side, the genesis of, of Bob Benny, because that really does help a lot of us who are getting started. Uh, we kind of, uh, you know, I'll admit, you know, when we see really successful guys and we see uh, how large their their operation is, it's exciting to see that. The opposite side of the token, you when you are honest with yourself and you see where you're at uh, with, with, with your uh, journey, um, unfortunately, some folks get disheartened and they, they kind of, uh, they don't understand. They, they look at it and they don't see, they don't know all the, all the steps that it took. Um, but learning and, and better understanding with the Bob Benny in the first few years and getting started. And, and that really helps paint a picture of if folks really want to dig in, if, if the universe called and said this and you, and you pick up the phone uh, and you put the work in, that's a good way of putting, it. you know, there, there is that weird thing, however you want to spin it of uh, the law of attraction or uh, what goes around. Coming I like home. how you say spin it. A honey pun. Oh, is that punny? I just yeah, don't that's know. Funny. Yeah. Well, if I had to put beekeeping success in one word, I'd have to use the word tenacity. Tenacity. Tenacity, yeah. That's, that's great. Bob, thanks again for, yeah, for taking absolutely. the time. We really appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to, to talking with you again in the future. As always, be the lighthouse. Be awesome. 
be grateful. Thanks for listening. Yeah. See ya. Hey, that'll work. <laughs> How about that?